Hello everyone and welcome back to the second episode of Nefarious. So for those of you who are new here, welcome. My name is Bailey Butchie and I am currently a student at Arizona State University and I'm studying criminal justice and forensic psychology and this podcast is part of my final thesis project for my undergraduate degrees. If you haven't already, I suggest going back and listening to the first episode just because it offers a little bit more of an introduction of who I am and what this project is all about. It also covers the case of Richard Ramirez and addresses some of the criminological theories uh, surrounding his upbringing and crime. It's a really interesting episode and I suggest taking a listen after finishing this one. So for today's case, we will be talking about the Brock Turner Stanford rape case and discussing the larger problem that is sexual assault on college campuses. So with that being said, I do want to warn listeners that this episode does address rape with sexual assault in depth. So if for any reason at all that makes you uncomfortable or that's a trigger for you, please do not hesitate to skip this episode and come back next week when we have a different one. So before we get started, I just wanted to make a note that Chanel Miller, who is the woman who was sexually assaulted by Brock Turner, only publicly came forward and revealed her identity in 2019. So throughout all the court proceedings of this case, she was referred to as Emily Doe. But now that she has accounted for her experience and claimed her identity as the victim in this case, we will be using her full name throughout this podcast. So to start, we're just going to jump right in and provide the details of this crime that occurred. And we're also going to be giving multiple different people's point of view of what they recount happening. So most of this information comes from a publication of court documents by the Los Angeles Times. And I highly suggest checking it out if you want to see a lot of the details of this case up close and personal or if you want to do your own research or anything. On January 17, 2015, Chanel Miller, along with her sister and some friends, had decided to go to a Stanford fraternity party that was taking place on campus. Before heading to the party, her and her friends did decide to partake in some drinking, and it's said that Chanel had about four shots of whiskey before coming to the party. At the party, they were drinking and mingling and having fun, and it was stated that Chanel had two more shots of vodka and then some beer. Shortly after midnight at this party, her group that she arrived with split up and her sister and some of the friends decided to go back to one of the friends' dorms, but Chanel and a friend named Julie decided to stay at the party, but they too were eventually split up shortly after the rest of the friend group left. At this point in time, Chanel called her boyfriend Lucas, who went to school and lived on the East Coast, so there was some sort of time difference there, so when he called her, it was actually in the middle of the night for him. Um, But he did answer, and he could not understand her due to Chanel's state of being at this point and how drunk she was. Lucas just said that there was no way for him to really understand what it was she was saying or what it was she was doing. So he quickly just hung up and decided to go back to sleep. But then Chanel called again, and it went to voicemail. Lucas immediately listened to the voicemail, and he called her back because, once again, he realized just how drunk she was and wasn't sure if she had any of her friends with her and so he was quite worried so he called back and he was urging Chanel to call her sister. Chanel did actually call her sister but her sister also could not understand her due to her state of how drunk she was and just what she was saying. She was not able to understand what it was that Chanel was trying to get across and so her sister tried to call Julie, the friend that was left at the party with Chanel, but Julie did not answer her phone. So about 30 minutes after that phone call, just shortly after 1 a.m., officers responded to a call of an unconscious woman. 
Upon arriving, the officers found a woman laying next to a dumpster. This woman was later identified as Chanel. Officers said that her underwear was found lying next to her and her dress was pulled up past her waist and her hair was knotted and covered in pine needles. Two men who had reported the incident, Peter Johnson and Carl Frederick Arndt, were pinning down and restraining a man who had assaulted Chanel, which we later find out was Brock Turner. At this point, Chanel was transported to the hospital while remaining unconscious, and upon regaining consciousness, she was medically cleared to undergo an SART exam. An SART exam is also known as a Suspected Abuse Response Team exam, which is an evidentiary medical exam. So it provides thorough medical care to any victims who undergo the exam, as well as it collects evidence that may be useful in prosecuting a case if that is the route that the person decides to go. So now we're going to be looking at the witness's point of view. So Johnson and Arndt, the two men who found Chanel, were interviewed following the incident. They said that they were riding their bikes to the party. It was kind of late, but they were hoping to just kind of catch the end of the party when they noticed a woman was motionless lying on her back and a man was thrusting his hips into her. Realizing that this wasn't just kind of your normal event that you happen upon, They got closer and they noticed that the woman on the ground had her eyes closed and her head was like lolling towards the side to which Johnson screamed, hey, she's unconscious. Like, what are you doing? And at that point, Turner slowly got up and turned to run away. The two men went and checked on Chanel, realized that she was in fact unconscious. And they decided that at that point, the best thing they could do was chase Turner and ensure that he didn't get away and then call the police so that the police could come and help Chanel. So that's exactly what they did. They turned and they ran after Turner, where they tackled and restrained him until police were able to arrive. So now we're going to take a look at events from Brock Turner's point of view. And this information was provided by Turner to establish his account of events that happened that night. And it comes from the documents from the case People v. Turner, and it's actually from his testimony at trial. So as Turner recounts, he started drinking before the party as well. He was in a dorm room and he had about five beers and some whiskey. Turner also continued drinking once he arrived at the party, but said he only had about two more beers while at the fraternity house. Turner says that he approached Miller at around 12.30 a.m. where she was dancing outside of the fraternity house and they began flirting and he was dancing with her and then they ended up kissing. At this point, he asked if she had wanted to go back to his dorm room, which she agreed. While they were walking back, the two actually lost their footing and fell to the ground. Turner says they both just kind of laughed about it, and then they actually started kissing and then dry humping. Turner says he consensually removed Chanel's underwear and began penetrating her with his fingers. But then, due to how drunk he was at this point in time, he said he started to feel sick. At this point, he got up off the ground and stumbled away from Chanel. He said he was moving away just in case he did actually get sick. Um, But then this was when he was tackled and restrained by Johnson and Arndt. So when looking at Turner's arrest, the trial, and his sentencing, most of this information was retrieved from Elena Cadvani's article published at the Palo Alto Online News. So Turner, upon police arriving at the scene, was arrested. He was charged on five counts for the rape of an intoxicated person, the rape of an unconscious person, sexual penetration by a foreign object of an intoxicated woman, sexual penetration by a foreign object of an unconscious woman, and assault with the intent to commit rape. Turner, however, was released the same day on $150,000 bail. 
His trial began early in March of 2016, and throughout the entirety of his trial, Turner maintained his innocence and said that it was never his intention to try and rape a girl without her consent. Turner's defense continuously referenced to Miller's lack of memory of the night as a viable support for why Turner must be telling the truth because, frankly, there's no other witnesses, and, and since Chanel was unconscious, she cannot remember what it was that actually occurred. And therefore, Turner's defense team thought that for some reason this proved his point of events rather than disproved. The defense had witnesses testify to the event of the night and the state of Chanel throughout the night. So they had Miller herself testify, as well as her sister, the two witnesses, Johnson and Arndt, and then her boyfriend, Lucas, was, um, was actually called to the stand as well. Her defense also focused on Miller's lack of memory, but rather than blaming Miller and like using this as a way to, to excuse Turner's actions, they looked at it as a lack of consent. During the trial, Turner's original charges were dropped to just three counts, assault with the intent to commit rape of an intoxicated or unconscious person, sexual penetration of an intoxicated person, and sexual penetration of an unconscious person. And Turner was actually found guilty on all three counts. At the sentencing hearing, there were a variety of character statements in the defense of Turner from most of his family and friends. And then Stanford students and staff actually wrote in as well, advocating for a harsher sentencing of Turner, saying that they believe that this was a disgrace to their college campus and they believed that he needed to be punished harshly for the crimes that he did commit. Most notably at this hearing was a 12-page victim impact statement from Miller herself. As mentioned before, these are all part of the documents published by the Los Angeles Times. So if you are interested, I highly recommend checking it out. But if you do only read one thing from these documents, please let it be Chanel's impact statement. It's just incredibly moving. It's heart-wrenching and it just provides a real representation of how these kinds of crimes affect victims long-term and I just, it was amazing to read. I applaud her for coming forward and for being so brave to face her abuser head on. And it was just, I would just give it a read if you're able to. So for these crimes, Turner was facing a maximum of 14 years in prison. And the prosecution was only advocating for six. They thought that six was sufficient for the crime that he committed. And they knew that the likelihood of him receiving the maximum was unlikely. And so they were just trying to advocate for an amount that they seemed to be fair for Miller and the crimes that she had to go through. However, Judge Aaron Persky sentenced Turner to just six months of jail time and three months of probation. Which, if you ask me, and honestly many of those who saw this sentence, that's basically a slap on the wrist. Like, that is nothing compared to not only the maximum he was facing for the crime, but what the prosecution was advocating for. But if that was not bad enough, Turner was actually released early after serving only half of that sentence on the grounds of good behavior. So he only served about three months of jail time for his role in the assault on Chanel Miller. So this case of Brock Turner is... Very unfortunately, just one of many that paint a larger picture of a grander problem, which is sexual assault on college campuses. This itself is a much smaller issue within a bigger frame, which is the general rape culture of America. College campuses serve as a unique population just due to the institutions that uphold typically gendered views, such as fraternities and sororities, 
as well as the party atmosphere that is tied to these environments. As many of us know, fraternity and sorority parties are a big part of the college experience. So as defined by Erin O'Neill in her journal article, Victim is Not Credible, the Influence of Rape Culture on Police Perceptions of Sexual Assault Complainants, Rape culture is defined as a theoretical construct encompassing societal beliefs and ideals which normalize and sometimes even expect sexual violence, thereby creating and facilitating an environment conducive to rape. Rape culture is commonly displayed through the use of male-dominant social norms, along with the tolerance and excusal of sexual violence towards women. This tolerance and excusal of sexual violence can be exhibited in many, many ways, but one of the most common is through the adherence to rape myths. So in their book, Sex Offenders, Crimes and Processing in the Criminal Justice System, Sean Madden and Lynn Pisani define rape myths as negative attitudes, beliefs, or misconceptions surrounding sexual assault and victims of sexual assault that essentially just embody this kind of social acceptance of rape. So there are four main categories of rape myths. So there's nothing happened, no harm done, she wanted it, and she deserved it. So nothing happens suggests that women are lying about being raped for whatever reason they see fit. Um, And then no harm done is the perception that although sex did occur, it was not rape due to no obvious injuries. She wanted it is centered around the idea that a woman never truly means no, and any resistance she has towards the encounter is just part of this larger act that she's putting on that makes it seem like she's supposed to resist, so that's why she's saying no. And finally, she deserved it, insinuates that any woman who wears provocative clothing, consumes alcohol, takes drugs, or places themselves in any sort of situation where rape could possibly occur, then they simply just got what was coming to them. If you guys are like me, these rape myths are pretty aggravating, just reading about how the various ways women are blamed for their own victimization, but... As I mentioned before, this is part of what the rape culture in America is like and why it is still happening and why people still react this way. And then one thing that all of these myths have in common is victim blaming. So victim blaming in general is the tendency to hold victims of crimes accountable for what happened to them. And unfortunately, as I've kind of alluded to, survivors of sexual assault tend to be one of the most vulnerable populations to these attacks. These ideas are generally built upon the patriarchal structure of our society, which holds men on a pedestal in comparison to women and allows them to unjustly excuse their actions. So as we mentioned earlier, college campuses are a special population when it comes to this, specifically because these attitudes and beliefs tend to be very popular due to the gendered society that these institutions kind of uphold. So in the journal article, The Greek System, How Gender Inequality and Class Privilege Perpetuate Rape Culture, Kristen Jaskowski and Jacqueline Wiersman Mosley focus on how fraternities exemplify a smaller scale of what power and control looks like in a male-dominated society, as well as how that connects to rape on college campuses. So fraternities grant individuals with a higher social status and subsequently more perceived power and control over their peers. So when you combine this with the gender inequality that's already just kind of present in society, as well as the presence of rape-supportive attitudes, fraternity events quickly turn into a very dangerous environment for many young women. When discussing fraternities, it is also essential to discuss the party culture that accompanies them. So fraternities often hold large parties that are filled with music, drugs, alcohol, and tons of rowdy college students. As the fraternities are the ones hosting the party, 
those who are involved in the fraternity kind of have this implied amount of power and control over those in attendance. They use this power and control to assert themselves over the men who are not part of the fraternity but are at the party, as well as they use it to gain attention from the women who are quote-unquote benefiting from their generosity as hosts of the party. When looking at the relationship between sexual assault and fraternities, both the presence of male dominance and the presence of alcohol are directly related to this high prevalence of victimization and this high prevalence of sexual assault. So the underlying male dominance has been largely associated with sexual violence. Men tend to use rape as a way to exert power over women and to maintain the gender imbalances that are so deeply ingrained in our society. Those who display the ideals of male dominance and support of rape culture are also more likely to accept rape myths that we talked about earlier and to blame the victim for the assault that happens. Ashley Speaks Andrew and Cassandra Alexopoulos in their journal article, Framing Blame in Sexual Assault, an analysis of attribution in news stories about sexual assault on college campuses, they examine the link between alcoholic consumption and sexual assault. In their article, they find that 50% of all cases of sexual assault involve the consumption of alcohol by one or both parties. And they also find that women who drink compared to their counterpart of women who don't drink are twice as likely to be victims of sexual assault. There's also a higher risk of victim blaming when alcohol consumption is involved. There's just kind of this double standard between men and women where men are encouraged to binge drink and get belligerently drunk, but women, on the other hand, are supposed to know their limits and maintain a certain level of control while indulging. So under that belief, if a woman is sexually assaulted while she is under the influence or while she has been drinking alcohol, then she is blamed for her victimization because it was her responsibility to know her limits and her responsibility to maintain control while she was drunk, whereas the man just kind of is excused for his actions. So when looking at how this connects to the case of Chanel Miller and Brock Turner, um, as we mentioned before, both parties were drinking heavily, and Chanel had drunk to the point that she had actually become unconscious and passed out, and it could be stated that she drunk to the point that she blacked out due to her lack of memory of the evening. And then Turner also started drinking very early on in the night and was said to continue drinking throughout the night. A couple bystanders had said that you could smell the alcohol coming off of Turner. So it was clear that he was also very drunk in this situation as well. And while it cannot be explicitly stated, given the evidence that we have, it can be implied that Turner probably succumbed to some sense of male dominance which could have been reinforced not only by his peers through his participation in athletics, but it could just kind of be reinforced by those other men that were in attendance of the party. Within this case, we can also see this kind of acceptance of those rape myths that we talked about earlier. So the nothing happened, the no harm was done, that she wanted it and she deserved it. So specifically looking at Turner's case, the rape myth nothing happened was upheld by Turner maintaining his innocence and stating that he did not rape Miller Throughout the entirety of his trial, he said that that was not what happened, that that never happened, that they were just consensually kissing and hooking up, but there was never any sex that occurred and he never raped her. The rape myth of no harm done can be seen through Brock Turner admitting that he did penetrate Chanel with his fingers, but that he never had sex with her and therefore it was not rape. And then we see the rape myth of she wanted it when Turner talks about how him and Miller were flirting and dancing and kissing before they even decided to leave to go to his dorm. And at no point during any of their interactions did Miller ever say no to him. 
despite her being unconscious for part of their um, interactions and being unable to say anything, let alone no. But in that sense, if she did not say no, then Turner kind of just insinuated that she wanted it, that she was a willing participant in the entire thing. And since she did not say no, then she did not disagree to what was happening to her. And the final rape myth of she deserved it, this kind of connects back to what we were talking about and the double standards between men and women when it comes to consuming alcohol. People argued that because she consumed too much alcohol and she was drunk or she doesn't remember what happened, that basically she deserved whatever happened to her. Like she was at a party with numerous men besides Turner and she decided to drink and lose control and not remember what happened to her. So therefore she deserved to be sexually assaulted. As I mentioned earlier, these are extremely aggravating and it's extremely frustrating to hear these things even being considered when it comes to cases of sexual assault and rape just because it's so upsetting that women in our legal system and in our country and in our communities are being sexually assaulted and then it's being excused through various means. Rape in America and specifically sexual assault on college campuses is a huge issue that is plaguing our nation and targeting the women of our country. There have been some acknowledgments made in recent years with the extension of Title IX for college campuses as well as the Me Too movement, but as you can clearly see, there is still much that needs to be done. College is supposed to be the best years of your lives. But for many women, much like Chanel Miller, it turns out to be some of their worst. This should not be happening. This should not be the norm. And there needs to be a huge societal and culture shift away from male dominance and away from these rape-inducive attitudes just to make a difference and to make sure that this doesn't happen and so that for generations to come, women can go to college and have that experience that they're promised. They can go to college and not fear of being sexually assaulted or raped or they can drink alcohol and have fun and let loose with their friends and not have to worry about the repercussions of their actions based on men taking advantage of them or based on society blaming them for having a good time. But in order to make this happen, it would take each and every one of us to do our part and simply just listening to this podcast and learning more about rape culture in America and sexual assault on college campuses and all these different things, just becoming more aware of the problem and the different mentalities that go into this, that's a huge step. That's just understanding the problem and learning what it is you can do to attempt to fix the problem or just your take your part in fixing the problem it's a huge accomplishment. And so even just listening to this podcast, you're already doing your part. So that wraps up this second episode of Nefarious. And as I've said, I know that this case was a bit much and it was kind of uncomfortable at times, but I think it is an important topic to discuss. And frankly, it's a problem that just needs to be addressed. So with that being said, thank you guys for listening and I will be back next time with another case for you all.